Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 15 of Above the Fold, powered by Brafton. As always, you got Jeff Baker and Francis Ma co-hosting um, this wonderful podcast about uh, marketing and the content marketing industry. Jeff is your data guy. He loves facts and figures and spreadsheets. And myself, Francis, is more into the creative side of things, looking at uh, stories, emotions, and, um, and, and how people feel about certain types of content. Um, we have a special episode today. We got a guest. Uh, I'm going to let Jeff do the intros. Um, but before we get into that, just a quick reminder um, to subscribe and rate to the podcast on iTunes. As always, Jeff lives for the star ratings, be it one star or five. Um, if it's a one star, it's even better. Jeff, uh, it haunts him day in and day out, and he will not get over it ever. So um, it's always fun to kind of have him uh, talk about the ratings uh, every once in a while. Um, but uh, without further ado, I'm going to give it over to uh, Jeff. And um, Jeff, you found a you found a homeless guy to bring on to the uh, to the show today. Is that right? Oh, I did. Yeah. And and by the way, I'm really <laughs> appreciating your backhanded explanations of my my passion, my career passion, <laughs> and my hobbies. Uh, oh, he looks charts and graphs and stuff. Um, thank you for downplaying my, my life's work. Um, it's, it's your anyway. fault for letting me do the intro. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> I'll fully own that. Um, mm. Yes, we have a special uh, edition this week. We've got Cyrus Shepard, who uh, led the audience development team uh, for Moz for a number of years, meaning he was the head of SEO and content. Um, I met Cyrus in Seattle for uh, coffee a couple weeks ago on a business trip. Uh, where I had a fancy Seattle latte served with a cookie, Francis, which you Cretans out there on the <laughs> East Coast would know absolutely nothing about. And uh, he yeah, agreed, to do this, agreed to do this podcast. So Cyrus, uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Hey, happy to be here. When I heard there was a special guest on the show, I was really excited. And then you said it was me. And then I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, boy. Well. Um, you, you came to the right place. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so as always at Above the Fold, we're going to go through a couple different topics. Um, but um, Jeff, you wanted to jump into a couple of life experiences that you had over the weekend. One of them was the um, the infamous Amazon Go shop that you uh, you kind of uh, you found in your neighborhood. Yeah, you know, we've been talking about this Amazon Go thing for previous episodes. And um, I've been meaning to go into one, but I just hadn't really run into one. And sure enough, walking down the streets of San Francisco, um, it was right in front of me, brand new Amazon Go shop. Uh, so I actually, we'll share out some pictures uh, in the show notes. I make sure to document the whole thing. But the overall experience was weird, man. Like you walk in there <laughs> and you've got these, um, you've got these lanes, these glass lanes, uh, and you can't walk in until you download the Amazon Go app. So you actually have to have an app. And it has wow. like, it gives you its own barcode scanner type deal. You stick your phone down on it. The glass doors open Star Trek style. And then you just walk around the store and there's, there's hardly anybody there, like hardly any workers. And I asked them, I said, do I just take stuff off the shelves? And they're like, yeah, just take it <laughs> off the shelves and put it in your pocket. Like, it felt, <laughs> it felt so unusual that I actually had to ask for permission. I, I took all the stuff, put it in my pocket and walked out of, I just walked out of the store. I said, do I walk out? And I'm like, yeah, you're, you're done. You just walk out. We'll, we'll send you a receipt. It was very, very odd. Did you, did you feel like you were getting away with something when you uh, put something in your pocket? No, because I was raised with so much damn guilt that I had to like <laughs> talk, personally talk to every employee and be like, is it, hey, hey, you saw me put that in my pocket, right? That's okay. <laughs> and uh, no, I've, actually, I've, I felt uh, I felt really weird about it. And it was actually even more weird. It's very big brother. Uh, when you look up in the ceilings, they've got all these T-bar ceilings. And it's filled with nothing but sensors everywhere. It looked like a thousand Apple TVs just all over the place looking at everything that you did. So I, I imagine they've got some... That's exactly what's tracking all of your movements and all of the, the product going in and out. Um, but felt felt very watched. Uh, felt a little uncomfortable, but also very easy. So I'm, I'm very, very lukewarm on the idea. So what can you actually buy at Amazon Go? Like what is on the shelf? Are you walking out there with like a PlayStation or is it all just like all tiny stuff that can just fit in a pocket? I mean, what what is what is there? Uh, actually, I shared my receipt with you. Let's say it's... Uh, Here's, here's exactly what I bought because I email you the receipt right afterwards. 
I bought uh, a smart water, a reusable bag. Felt pretty good about that. A protein <laughs> bar and an Urban Remedy macro bowl. Very uh, San, very San Francisco. <laughs> what is what is that? What is the bowl? I don't understand those words around like, the bowl. It's like, oh, where are we? Where are you going with that, Francis? Where, it was like sweet potatoes, chickpeas, <laughs> and some some salad type some salad type mix. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Je- Jeff, to be honest, Jeff, to be honest, this sounds like an obligatory purchase that you felt you had to buy something. And, uh, <laughs> you're just grabbing chapstick and, you know, hand sanitizer, whatever, whatever you felt like you could uh, get away with on the, on the way out the door. <laughs> well, here's the thing, guys. I, I knew that I was going to have to share the receipt. So I thought pretty carefully about like, you know, I didn't want to, <laughs> I didn't want to make a total ass of myself. <laughs> Like, oh, wow. Okay. So he bought himself a, uh, a Zima and no, I had, to, I had to clean up my receipt. I had to clean up my receipt a little bit. It's not doctored. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, I want, I wonder if you're allowed to go there and not buy anything. Like if you just go in there and browse around and just leave, like, wait, you're not going to take anything off the shelf. How dare you? How, how do you, why do you, why are you coming in here and not taking anything? I think that would freak him out. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I don't know, dude. Um, <laughs> I took things, as I mentioned, I, I took things with, with, with plenty of guilt behind it, but I, I took things. Uh, I hope this eliminates the problem of not being able to take merchandise into the restroom. Uh, <laughs> was that a problem, sir? That's always a problem. You're, you're halfway through your shopping. You have to go to the restroom and you get there and the door says, please, no merchandise in the restroom. So you're like, what do I do with this? Uh, it's, it's a, it's a bigger, it's a hidden epidemic is what it is. It's a much bigger problem than people realize. Um, so hopefully this, this solves that. God, we got to put some people I, I, that. I, I don't think I've experienced that. Oh, come on. I totally have like you and you yeah. put the stuff in a pile and you have to trust, you know, the public not to mess with your pile that's outside the bathroom. Um, cause that, once you leave, it's like, it's all, you know, all bets are off. Someone could show up, the, uh, the staff could show up and just put everything back and you just spend an hour and a half looking for all these random things. Um, I agree. Do I, your, I do hope this solves, uh, solves the problem. Where do you put your 18 children, Francis, while you're using the restroom? <laughs> do you stack them on top of your, your groceries? <laughs> no, no. The, that grocery shopping and just regular shopping are two different things with the kids. You, you already know you're in there and you, you're in there for like two and a half hours for the most random things. And it's, it shouldn't take that long. But you have to figure in like screaming in the aisle, the at least two bathroom breaks, um, questions about, you know, food and everything. It's just it's, it's exhausting. Well, related topic. Obviously, I'm as Amazon Go was creating this for convenience, for one. And sure. it was also doing it because the overhead goes down. It's like hardly any employees in there. There's like two employees, three employees, something like that. Um, related same day, I was walking down the street and I saw something that caught my eye, robotic coffee bar. It's like, well, damn, of course I have to go in there. Uh, So sure enough, I went in there and there's this giant robot arm encapsulated in this glass case that takes up maybe like a quarter of the room. It's it's obviously like the highlight of the room. And there's a bunch of uh, display touchpads right in front of it where you go and order your coffee. And it's essentially like a, it's like a Mr. Coffee times a thousand. It's just a giant Mr. Coffee, except there was like a ton of people in there and one employee. So I think this is like really related. It's almost like they're using this, this, uh, this technology uh, as kind of like a novelty thing. However, in like in both instances, in the Amazon Go store and in this Mr. Uh, giant Mr. Robot store, there's like zero employees. It seems like that's like the direction of these brick and mortars. I, I have some definite opinions on this. Um, if, if you could allow me, uh, for one, I, I, it totally makes sense. I mean, there's no reason you need a real human being to make coffee. It's, it's pretty much an automated, they're, they're just pushing buttons anyway. Uh, I used to do some work, uh, for Starbucks at Starbucks corporate headquarters and they have espresso machines everywhere, every floor, and it's just pressing buttons. That's basically all you're doing. Um, on the other hand, I work at home. Uh, my daily trip to Starbucks, uh, is social interaction for me and talking to the baristas saying, hi, exchanging money. That's an important part of the process. So I would very much miss baristas disappearing. 
Um, and I don't know about you guys. You guys seem like I, I read a lot of science fiction. I don't know if you guys mm-hmm. do. Uh, in a lot I of science fiction, in a lot of science fiction stories, uh, in the future they they indicate wealth by people having actual human servants as opposed to robot services. <laughs> and I, I hope that's not where we're going, but it very well could be that uh, you know for for a great touch, you actually hire a human to make your coffee instead of a robot. But that that may be where things are headed. I kind of agree with you. That, and that is kind of a scary thought. I'm with you on the, I also work from home as well. So I spend a lot of time speaking to my dog, which she responds with this <laughs> cockeyed, you know, not getting it type of look. So I completely agree. I go to Starbucks for the sound, the ambiance, uh, you know, speaking with the barista. That may be the only human contact I have all day. As Francis knows, I have no friends. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of with you on that. If I went to a robot bar, I would grab my coffee and I would go back home and start talking to my dog again. It's it sounds like that um if the robots could only have a conversation, you know, both problem the problem would be solved. Like I mean maybe not robotic conversation. How was the weather day weather today sir? Like something real. If the robots can do that, um this would this would be fine. That being said if the robots can do that, um Jeff this goes back into like how we always think AI is going to take over the world and that's Basically, what what they have conversations, and suddenly they can, they take over the human race, and we're all screwed. How do you always end up so hyperbolic? Every episode ends with you <laughs> thinking Skynet is is taking over. Uh, it's just it, we're inching toward it, man. It just takes these conversations that robots can have, and then uh, they can talk to each other, and suddenly the revolution begins. It's, it's that easy. Cyrus, we can't indulge him on this. He'll just go all day. I think we need to jump into it. <laughs> I think we need to jump into our first topic here. <laughs> Sounds good, guys. This podcast is like oh, yeah. any other podcast I've ever participated in. So uh, that that's that's very unique so far. <laughs> we'll take that as a compliment. I uh, I think I think we have to. I think we absolutely have to. Okay, so um, uh, first topic, um, survey on chatbots. Um, and actually, Jeff, this is something that you ran um, yourself. You ran a survey, um, about, it says 196 people, and you wanted to know their feelings on chatbots, the thing that pops up at the corner of a website that basically says, how can I help you? Or are you trying to find this specific answer? Um, and I, I, don't, I don't remember how many questions you actually asked, but um, the results were pretty interesting from people who thought they were creepy to people who thought that um, they were incredibly helpful. Um, what, uh, well, first talk about the survey, talk about why you put it out there and, you know, what what were you surprised or what, what were some of the insights that you found off this thing? <laughs> okay, so I'm gonna have to give the audience a little bit of background because we used a chat bot earlier in the year around Q1, Q2, we used Drift and I actually managed the chat bot. So I set up like oh. the, it's, it's called like a playbook. So basically it's like the, uh, the intelligence that you put behind the chat box so that it has some sort of, um, <clears throat> some sort of like meaningful interaction with people and it's not completely useless. And I also managed the actual <laughs> chats with people. And I did this for about three months. <laughs> I guess I got abused so hard. I was like a, I was like a <laughs> Twitter, it was like a Twitter dumpster fire, except with me and also, our chat bot, we use the icon of my dog, Charlie, who's like a bulldog. She's like a fawn, uh, brown and white, cute looking bulldog. And people even abused my dog. <laughs> and some people actually had conversations with the dog. And just like I read the chat scrant- chance, uh, transcripts that would come through at about one in the morning. That was just a series of like woof, 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 and then woof in all caps. And these people would do this for like 15 minutes. Um <laughs> Eventually, we, we ended up getting rid of the thing. Uh, it drove me crazy. Didn't like the leads I got from it. So I wanted to I wanted to get a sense of uh, how our audience are. Uh, we sent this out to our newsletter audience. I wanted to know what their sense on chatbots was, what their experience was, if they felt that it was actually um, useful for them uh, as users, and or if you know if they felt that it was uh, terrible. So we had a series of questions, and then we had open ended responses where they could just respond to their overall feelings on chatbots. And we're going to go through some of these because they're some of them are damned hilarious. But before we do, um, Cyrus, let's get your take, chatbots. Uh, give me your 20-second download, if you would. 
Okay, I think I think a good chatbot is one that you don't realize you're interacting with uh, right away. And uh, we'll get into some of these specific questions, but I, I think uh, people are interacting with chatbots more than they realize. Uh, a good chatbot is invisible, uh, just like a good toupee. Um, so <laughs> people don't know uh, they're they're interacting with this. So uh, that's that's my. I, I think chatbots are the future, just like robotic uh, coffee machines. Um, and you only really notice the bad ones. Um, so that's a good story. <laughs> Francis, let's let's go to you. So um, I've only experienced the ones that are obviously chatbots. I would love to find the ones that I, I didn't realize they were a chatbot. I will say that um, I, I had a washing machine that broke or is still broken technically. And um, the chatbot on the LG like website actually was helpful in at least telling me the basic stuff. But then it got me to a human is the thing. It was like the bridge from like, oh, this is your problem. I can't handle this. I'm going to bring you to the to the human person that's going to help you. Um, that's been helpful. But like when when I've been like the bank, Bank of America has one too now where, you know, it's asking you all these questions. Do you want to open a loan? Do you want it's it, it turns into an annoying thing that now I just feel like I'm getting sold by. a. And I think that's what Charlie was probably doing, maybe um, by by a chatbot. Charlie's my dog, and Charlie, she had a bit of a hard pitch. That's that's fair. <laughs> so some some of the stats on this: uh, roughly ninety percent of the people that we surveyed, uh, it, it hit about two hundred or so. Ninety percent had interacted with a chatbot uh, at some point. <clears throat> Second question was, how useful do you find them? One was extremely annoying, and then somewhat annoying, neutral, uh, somewhat helpful, and then extremely helpful. And uh, most of the people actually responded. It was about 48% responded between somewhat helpful to extremely helpful, which is interesting because when you actually read their written responses, they couched every one of their responses in it's useful if, or it's useful except Mm. when. So the thematic uh, element that we found here was people fall on one side of the spectrum or the other. And most people who give strong remarks they say they rather speak to a human. Um, however, they will speak to a chatbot if it's programmed correctly. T- to your point, again, Cyrus, if it is programmed correctly and it's it's an intelligent chatbot with uh, strong logic behind it, uh, it's useful. However, if you cross over, it's like a really, really thin spectrum. If you cross over from being uh, you know, useful and with strong logic to not being very smart, I guess you would say, um, it becomes extremely annoying in a quick hurry. So people just fall on either side of the fence very, very easily. So I have to, uh, Jeff, move on to the third one real quick because I have a point to make. <laughs> I, I have another point to make. I have another point to make about this one, but I need to make my next point first. Uh, this is what happens when I don't have enough coffee in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So uh, we, we got a couple of favorite quotes here. Um, and we'll, we'll just start with some of the ones that ex- explain the basic sentiment behind it first. So first one is, I know some brands like them, but I think they are too robotic and not flexible. Take too long to answer your question. Don't push me to email you. Answer me now, exclamation point. Very passionate, <laughs> impassioned response there. Um, another one, for me, the quality of the experience depends on how easy it is to get a hold of a real person if your question falls outside the program's parameters. Again, going back to our point. Uh, last one, in my one interaction, I, it asked a couple of questions. I answered, it didn't have enough knowledge and passed me off to a real person. So I think, quote unquote, not quite ready for prime time. And I think that's pretty much the through line here. Not quite ready for prime time, but people are kind of feeling like it's going to be a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Now, let me ask you guys, uh, you know, I when you call a customer service line, generally, uh, there are two types of people. I call a customer service line when I actually have a problem, not necessarily when I need information because I can look up information online, yada, yada, yada. And have you guys ever called customer service um, wanting information and you're completely happy with the automated chatbot responses? Or are you just frustrated that you can't get to a human as quickly as possible? I guess the, on- the only time I've done that for specific information was when I had to check like, a, uh, a gift card balance or something to do with like a card or a credit card or something like that. Cause it's easy enough to be like, well, I don't, 
well, maybe I don't have the app or I'm not logged in or whatever it might be. And I just need to know, well, how much does this gift card have? But um, that's been the only instance when I've wanted information. I typically am the person that calls customer service when I have a problem. And I just I start just hitting zero as fast as possible whenever the automated system shows up. <laughs> just button mashing over there like Mortal Kombat. Yeah, just like people. I need a person. I need a person right now. Yep, great example. So I'd say in uh, to answer that question for me, I'll just read one of the responses that is exactly who I am. It says, on the one hand, I never want to talk with support on the phone. On the other hand, <laughs> when I've exhausted my self-support options, the last thing I want to do is interact with a chat bot that just redirects me to the same self-support options. I do not want to interact with a live person over the phone. I do want to interact with a live person via chat or email. Where did email support go? That's me. <laughs> that's, a real, that's a really good point. Ticket tracking. Uh, yeah. Another person said, uh, sometimes they don't know when to shut up, LOL. I feel like a person would be, a person would be less invasive. Oh, that's, yeah. <laughs> Going back to the washing machine thing, um, I, it, it, even though I got a person from the chat bot, the person was actually still in chat. I didn't actually, we didn't actually interact on the phone. And I think that was like the best of both worlds because you, you could have the conversation and we all live off like, you know, chat or like, um, you know, short texting or anything like that. We already kind of understand this language. And, um, that was actually even more helpful because the fact that I did have a person, or at least maybe I, maybe it wasn't, but a very smart robot, either way, just having it through chat made the conversation that much easier. You know, you can copy and paste the serial number. There's no miscommunication in terms of like, you know, this is the number, this is the thing that I've been dealing with and, and so on. Um, that was fantastic. Talking to someone on the phone and trying to go through like the serial number is F five, six, wait, what was that again? And, you know, it was, it was, it's always annoying on the phone. Um, nobody got time for that. No, no one's got time. But I think the chat thing was, I mean, I, you know, it's on my computer. I could, I was moving around a little bit. I could still talk to my family. I wasn't kind of like anchored to the phone, you know? Um, That's a really good point. I had to make, yeah. I had to make a medical appointment this week and, uh, the number I use, I've called several times over the years. It's typically a 10 to 30 minute wait on the phone. I would love to have a chatbot in that circumstance because uh, mm. you can just scale up another server, you know, and get a hundred more phone calls going um, instead of waiting for the next person in line. I think that's an excellent example of when a, when a chatbot would make a lot of sense. Yeah, for no other reason than just to have something to do while you're waiting. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I imagine, and I imagine in you know uh, a couple of years, a chatbot will be intelligent enough to make a simple medical appointment for me. There's actually, uh, you guys got to check this out. Doctors on demand. Uh, a friend of mine was doing all of the programming for them. Um, <clears throat> it's like an online doctor visit, and it does all of that. Basically, you enter your information, your insurance, whatever. Um, you say what you want to be seen for, and you. Boom. Five minutes later, you're face to face live chat with a doctor and they can prescribe whatever you need. Uh, you get like 15 minutes, goes through your insurance carrier. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah, it's the longest queue that I've had is maybe three, four minutes at the very most. Um, and then you're right up in front of somebody. Is this like any ailment? Am I like showing them what's on my body, like a weird whatever on my body from my phone? I mean... What are we well, talking? We're probably about? not going to be able to diagnose your gangrene <laughs> or your <laughs> scurvy. I don't, I, I don't know, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's it's, it's going to have to be within reason, you know. I can't. I'm actually more surprised. It's like an actual doctor yeah. having the conversation. On, I mean, I was a little. Do they, I mean, I have to assume. Did do they just have like two? I'm going to do two hours of video chats on this doctor on demand thing, and then that's it, or? I don't it know. I'm just kind of shocked that you're able to get like, yeah. This this one guy I got, I mean, the first couple times are great. The person seemed to be, you know, they're in their home, uh, working from the convenience of their home. Awesome. Making money, uh, helping people out. Good deal. Um, second person I saw was what appeared to almost look like in a bathrobe on a lazy boy. <laughs> I think he, meant, he may have been really, really enjoying the uh, the privileges of working from home a little, a little on the excessive side. <laughs> <laughs> However, notwithstanding, I, I still thought it was a, a pretty good service. Um, See, that's when chatbots are needed. Chatbots aren't going to like wear robes in front of you and, uh, you know, maybe indirectly uh, 
you know, make obscene gestures or whatever. I mean, at that point, I don't need a person. I need someone to be decent to me and uh, give me an answer. Well, let's be honest. Um, I just went to the robot bar, didn't have a barista to talk to, so I actually <laughs> talked to a talked to a doctor. <laughs> Francis wasn't picking up. Jeff, uh, all I got to say is thank God for your dog because you would have no interaction with another human being uh, at all without your dog. So that's well received, uh, understood, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, okay, let me wrap this up. There's there's one more good one here. Two more good ones here. Mm. Um, they seem like they may have a bright future, but right now they feel like glorified answering machines. <laughs> yeah. And last but not least, we've got one very, very succinct answer that pretty much sums it up. Nope. All caps. That's it. Just nope. <laughs> it says so much with just that one word. And give, sorry, just to give you a little context, we actually have somebody that commented on our uh, – Apple podcast ratings that uh, Francis referenced earlier um, gave us one star and just wrote the one word. Nope. And we've, it's, it's Ben one, two, four, five, six, seven. I don't know how we disappointed Ben so badly, but I, f- I feel like he's following us around just hitting us with <laughs> nope all the time. Uh, that, that, that describes my dating life in my twenties. Uh, I, nope. I, <laughs> nope. Nope. <laughs> Uh, well, maybe robots can help with that too in the future. Possibly. Uh, oh, <laughs> wouldn't that wouldn't that be awesome to have a artificially intelligent? Um, what what are the dating apps people use these days? Uh, like, swipe, swipe. Tinder or a- yeah, t- uh, yeah, exactly. Just to, just to automate the chats and use machine learning to optimize your chances, you know, of uh, meeting up with somebody. That would be kind of awesome. Maybe. You know what? That's actually not a bad idea. You could script a flirting conversation easy enough. You know, like these, it'd be, it'd be pretty easy to do, actually. It doesn't even have I mean, to make any sense. Gonna, you start, if you're going to automate your flirting, what are you going to do with your spare time? If that's what you're automating, what are you doing with your spare time? They're hearing nope all the time, Jeff. They're not getting the flirting conversation. They just want the flirting conversation. Uh Okay, maybe this is a terrible idea. Uh, we'll work on it. We'll send it back to the. We'll send it back to the idea room. Let's bring it back oh. to the cutting room floor here. We'll we'll, we'll rework that one. Yeah. I think there's potential. We'll we'll revisit. Um, but let's go on to uh, to number two. So um, second uh, second topic is the latest on uh, on voice search and and to be honest, this is something that. I mean, I don't know much about voice search, but I'm intrigued by it. I'm intrigued by the fact that it exists. I'm intrigued by the fact that it seems to be gaining steam. And through this podcast, we're talking to Jeff about, you know, data and and keywords and how that affects everything. You start wondering, you know, if and when, probably more when, when voice search starts to be more of a thing, how does that affect Jeff's job? How does that affect um, search engine optimization? Is search engine optimization even a thing with voice search? Um, what does it mean when people have to like ask specifically what they want and what are the answers these robots or uh, assistants, uh, giving people? Um, I don't know what the future of voice or voice search is. I just, I do feel like it's, it's going to affect the industry somehow. I just have no idea how. So I got a couple of thoughts. I'll jump in. Uh, one, I, I haven't been that interested in voice search up to this point because it's it's uh, I haven't seen evidence that it's extremely high ROI activity. Uh, that said, mm. I I am extremely uh, interested in featured snippets, which seem to fuel or be a source for a number of voice search answers. Um, so I think optimizing for featured snippet makes sense, and when you do that, you're often optimizing for voice search anyway. Uh, so I, I think that's a good thing. I, I think voice search is the future. I think there's some sticky, moralistic questions around attribution, um, how Alexa and Siri and Google uh, are collecting information on the web, summarizing information, and and attributing a source. And I, I, I don't think there are very good plans for that yet. And, and that worries me a little bit because we're seeing less and less attribution uh, in featured snippets, more people staying on Google. Google is creating, uh, now introducing double feature snippets. Um, 
And what we're seeing is the ability of Google to create entire web pages, taking a sentence here, a sentence there, uh, mm -hmm. collecting all these different sources that you never, you always have the answer and you never actually have to go to a third party web page, which kind of defeats the, mm -hmm. the purpose of a search engine. And I'm worried that we're, we're going in that direction too with voice search. I don't, there's no easy answers here, but uh, uh, I do have some concerns. Yeah, those are pretty similar notes to what I have too. And, and this actually came about uh, to give some, to give credit, as Google is not doing with a lot of attribution, um, Aleda Solis uh, put together a SlideShare deck that we'll send out in the show notes talking about uh, optimizing for voice search. And some of her findings or, or some of her conclusions she drew was that most of the searchings are more what she called action-driven. So uh, Alexa, play Despacito. Or uh, oh. Francis, uh, Alexa, put my kids on timeout. All right. <laughs> so it's it's more about, and they found that most of these are um, for parents managing tasks, and uh, it, it works because we're we're expecting uh, like conversations, and I think we got into that with chatbots. We're expecting more conversations, um, and I, I don't really necessarily think it's going to be a problem uh, for SEOs. Really, um, it's it's more again about the rich snippets. So I, I think if we get into the area where you know, people are, are asking voice questions. I don't think that's a huge issue. But when it starts responding with voice answers uh, to complex issues or things that start getting into the B2B realm, like if there's a way that you could have a conversation with your Google Assistant about how to pick the best content marketing agency mm. um, without yeah. any attribution, without any possibility of the owner of the website cooking you, retargeting you, uh, trying to convert you on the newsletter, things like that, then yeah, you're going to find me homeless on the streets. Then you're going to be, Francis, <laughs> your your dream moment of throwing me change on the streets and a banana. That that, that might actually come true. Um, but again, uh, Cyrus, to your point, it's the rich snippets, right? I mean, like 41% of voice, voice searches come with a rich snippet. And that's basically user-generated content for Google to pull into their SERPs or becoming kind of like a homepage, like a social media homepage where it's consolidating all this information without a whole lot of attribution. So it, it's kind of gone from like first page or bust to turning into like rich snippet or bust. And, and that's, that's kind of what scares me. Yeah, exactly. It, it is. You're right. It's very action oriented and it's, you know, what, what is the type of information that these, um, that these assistants, these voice assistants are, are giving us? I mean, already you can already ask them, you know, uh, call up the, the, the closest pizza place. Um, that being said, you don't really know if it's the closest piece, but it could just be, well, this is the first one that comes up into mind, or this is the one that paid for, you know, the voice assistant to kind of say first or whatever it might be. They might even not tell you, they'll just call up and, uh, maybe even make your order for you. You know, you always want the large pepperoni, send that to the house as fast as possible. Um, in many ways, I mean, you kind of, you guys are dancing around it, you know, at some point, do we even need websites? Yeah, uh, that's a good point. Now go to your question. Call, order me a pizza. Okay, so there. What if, uh, what if it's not the closest or the best pizza place, but it's someone who paid for sponsored placement, and you never exactly, even know. Exactly. You never even know. Yeah. I, I assume there'd be some FCC guidelines on that, but we see, uh, we see how well those are enforced with, uh, you know, ads <laughs> right now. So, uh, it's that's an, that's a really interesting uh, scenario. I don't know if you guys uh, see this when I when I'm looking on Google Maps. I often see, uh, if I'm searching for restaurants, I often see, I don't know what they are, and I need to ask you guys, maybe you know, I often see icons for like A&W Root Beer or Pizza Hut or McDonald's. And I'm wondering if, uh, you know, if that's a sponsored placement on Google Maps that's just not um, uh, indicated. Uh, but I can imagine something like that being, being done in voice search where it's so invisible, people are paying for it and, uh, it, it's not even there. Uh, what was, what was the other point that you just made about, uh, what's, what do you know about PO, about the lack of, uh, we might not even need websites in the future. Right. Right. Not even, not even need websites. I, I think that's a hugely important point. Also, we're seeing, we're seeing that, uh, at the micro local level, you know, bowling alleys or hair salons that, you know, don't really need, it's basically an appointment and they're just putting their, their information on Google and Facebook. And it's silly for them to have, you know, a third party website that they have to maintain. Um, yeah, true. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work for when you when your business model means driving traffic to your website, which is like, 
99.99% of the businesses that you, you guys and I work with, uh, it's, right. it's, a, it's a scary future. Um, it's, it's definitely scary. And, and Google is winning all of these transactions. And uh, sometimes we often aren't. Uh, they, they hold all the cards here. Well, yeah, essentially we're, we're playing by their rules, which seem to be changing daily, um, putting our lives in their hands. And it's, it's getting to a point where uh, Rand put out that really good slide share uh, a couple of weeks ago that we were talking about uh, on click the rates. Uh, some of the data that they pulled with, uh, did you read that Cyrus with jump shot? And for their point, yeah. Great study. Um, go ahead. Yeah, no, my point on that was just the, uh, the no-click search has gone up, uh, I think, uh, 95 and 12% for desktop and mobile. Um, that's, a, that's a scary damn thing. I mean, what that's telling us is that Google is pretty much taking these free resources that, that we specifically, we're a content marketing agency, uh, Francis and I, uh, that we're giving them and they're populating them in uh in SERPs. And if that trend continues at that pace, kind of a scary idea. Yeah, it, it is. And you're, you're, you're right. We're playing by Google's rules and there's very, I, I, I like the people at Google. I, I trust they try to do the right thing to a certain extent, but they have no friction in their decision-making process because at least in the United States, there's no regulatory oversight. Uh, publishers are not uh, unionized. The, 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 it's a little different story in Europe where publishers have banded together, where the European Union has issued some regulatory action. Um, I'm wondering how long until those types of actions, if ever, happen in the United States. Um, it's, it seems like pressure has to come from publishers. Pressure has to come you know, from governing bodies. And we've just seen the U.S. government uh, unwilling to act uh, in terms of publisher rights, in terms of attribution, things like that. I, right. It's just a complete unorganized mess. Um, but someday in the future, I, I see I see Google taking away so many clicks and and further further hurting the publishing industry that uh, publishers are forced to band together and put regulatory pressure on Google. Um, and I, I actually I hope that happens. I hope that the, not that I not that I am a big fan of unions. I, I am, but uh, I think there needs to be balance in decision making. And, and Google is a monopoly, and so I think there has to be some sort of balance on the other side. I mean, we could be seeing the beginning of this, even just with the no-click searches. Um, <clears throat> I think the second it hits the bottom line more, the second it hits the, the the publishers in the sense that, wait, I used to make this much in revenue or profit. What's going on here? Um, I think that's when things start changing. Things won't change based on like, well, that's not right. You know, you should you should allow them to go to it's, It'll change once money's involved. The second money's involved, the money is taken away. Um, that's when people rise up and say, this is wrong. Yep. Exactly. I, I'm kind of surprised it hasn't happened yet because uh, mm. so many websites that we ex, uh, experience every day online, we don't realize that they're part of huge networks like, uh, you know, Meredith Publishing Corporation or these, uh, mm. they're, they're, they're huge. And it just, if just three, anywhere, three, four or five publishing organizations in the U.S. banded together, they could exert huge pressure on Google. Instead, they kind of silo themselves and compete against each other. But I think we'll see a day mm. when maybe they start cooperating. It's interesting. Yeah. And Google really isn't making, we talked about this last week, they're really not making a whole lot of friends at the moment. Uh, they had the big walkout, 20% uh, of their workforce uh, walked out, I believe it was about two weeks ago or so. Um, and it got, you know, a lot of people collectively rolling their eyes at the uh, do no evil. Yeah. To their, to their credit, I believe that, I believe that, like I said, I believe they're good people there and they, in their mind, they're doing no evil or they're doing the right thing, but their goals are not aligned to hmm. publisher. Their goals are aligned to user engagement metrics and, right. uh, you know, quarterly income statements. And when those are what your goals are, those are what you're going to maximize to. And uh, my interests are not, are nowhere in that. So will, will DuckDuckGo ever make a go at Google? <laughs> I, I, I've never used DuckDuckGo. How about you guys? I, I have. I was underwhelmed. Very underwhelmed. <laughs> <laughs> You know, maybe maybe if they have made a run with T-shirts, that alone could help them. But um, yeah, it's unfortunate. <laughs> well, anyway, we should. I think that's a good natural place to move on to the third. But the um, it's interesting though. I mean, Cyrus, just to end it here, when what you said about the publishers like kind of grouping up together, 
You're right. It is surprising that hasn't happened yet. And, you know, is it the fact that one, maybe they don't realize what's going on? Or two, is it is it an element of like a generation has to like, you know, shift an upper upper management or executive management for something like this to happen? Um, but it is kind of like a sleeping giant. When will that happen? It's it it's all there for it to happen. Uh, we're just kind of like waiting for something to 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 kind of uh, show up. Yep. So with that, let's go to number three, the final topic. Jeff, it's another survey. It's not a survey you did though. It's a survey of a thousand bloggers, and I believe the idea was to kind of figure out. Um, um, Surveyed a thousand bloggers, um, basically about blogging statistics, how you know writing blogs, what it takes to, you know, research it and everything like that. This seemed pretty um, extensive in the sense of this much information, this much insight into just the idea of blogging. Um, Jeff, where did you find this? Uh, I believe I found this. Most of the articles I'm finding now are on uh, SparkToro trending, so I, okay. I believe this was trending at some point last week. Uh, yes, this was written by Andy Crestadina, uh, Orbit Media. And it was huge. Uh, in the blog post itself, he says it took him somewhere in the neighborhood of 150, 160 hours, something like that, to compile all this data and to actually write up the blog post. Uh, but it's it's awesome. And uh, as you mentioned, it's, it's all about uh, blogging, uh, techniques people are using, how long they're spending on it, um, the types of ROI that they're seeing, when they're seeing ROI, um, if they're using data to inform their decisions, um, stuff like that. So I, I think some of the the highlights here are that it's taking longer and longer to write blog posts. Um, we've known mm-hmm. that. We've seen that chart up yeah. to the right yeah. for the past, I don't know, five, five years or so, something like that. And it's now in the neighborhood of, I think, about three hours and 45 minutes is what's reported for the average blog post. Uh, mm-hmm. So that, that really speaks to the direction of content quality. The longer they're spending on these blog posts, obviously, obviously they're spending more time um, thinking about it and putting together, uh, you know, thoughtful content that's going to be a good resource for people. Um, at least that's what we're seeing, and that's what we're employing uh, as a, as an agency. And as a matter of fact, the average blog post is eleven hundred and fifty one words, according to this report. And people are publishing less frequently, yeah, too. Yeah. So they're going longer, and they're publishing a lot less frequently. Um, which makes sense because when you inundate people with, I mean, we did it years ago, content every single day, it loses its, you know, allure or loses its kind of like authority if it's like something new constantly every day. Um, Interestingly enough, toward the bottom here, it says create slash publish original research. The number of bloggers that saw like um, strong results was like, it's the highest one here. 58% of them saw that. Yet I also know it's not something everyone does. I mean, even just even just Brafton, we haven't done enough of it. I mean, you did this one survey that we talked about earlier, but there's a lot we could pull just from our own newsletter or our own clients, the insights we could gain um, that we just haven't done that yet. Um, why do you think that is, Jeff? Why is it? It's obvious that original research is huge. Why does it seem so hard to do? Well, I don't know. I like to get um, Cyrus's opinion on this, but it's hard to do. It's time consuming. So, I mean, if you've got, you've hired a blogger, they might not necessarily have the resources or the know-how to go about you know, creating True. a survey or doing original research on in whatever field it is that they're doing. Yeah, uh, uh, exactly. I, I did a lot. I, I published a lot of original research and uh, it's expensive and time consuming, um, especially if you want to do it uh, correctly. Uh, when I was at Moz, we did a number of uh, big research projects with original data, correlation studies, things like that. Uh, sometimes you can sometimes you can do it easier with simple uh, Google surveys or online Twitter polls, you know, anywhere to get original data. But uh, uh, to just point, it's it's hard, and you can't just uh, pay an average blogger to do original research. It's it's uh, it's at least five times the effort. Um, so you and you're making a gamble because is this going to pay off? Uh, mm-hmm. Am I going to get a five time return? on this original right, data. And right. I, I published original data pieces that, you know, kind of flop in the wind um, and they weren't worth it. But uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely difficult. But if you look at like the top performing types of content, the, the stuff that's getting shared on SparkToro, on, on trending, um, I, I'm willing to wager the majority of that is based on some sort of original thought, some sort of original 
content or research that uh, seems to get shared the most. It, it, it always seems to me that that anecdotally, in my experience, that's the most interesting stuff because it hasn't been written before. These insights haven't been garnered, at a, a, haven't been pulled out of the market yet. Um, so for, for me, in my experience, it seems that original research, uh, that's the stuff that people really, really want to read. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you've, you, you had a few flops, Cyrus, but I, I imagine you had some amazing successes too. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, uh, a good, a good, uh, good data point that's original, combined with a good chart and a good headline. Uh, those, those are the links that keep on giving. Yeah. So on like a, a per blog basis, I have to imagine that the if you compare a normal blog that's a, you know an opinion piece or some sort of um, analysis of what's going on in the news, something like that, compared to original research pieces that you produce, I have to imagine the original research pieces on average are going to be, are going to blow up a lot more often. Yeah. The fact that regardless if it's a flop or not, if people are hungry for original research, <clears throat> it, it seems like it's, it's always worth it. I mean, even, even if it does somewhat flop, you are bringing something new into the conversation. There, there is a new stat, there's a new something to kind of add to it. And then maybe Cyrus, maybe it, it's flopping at that moment, but maybe in the future that gets combined with something else that does bring itself some, 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 some different insight. Um, I think, I think if you have the time or the money, especially the time, um, doing anything original in terms of research, large or small, will always be somewhat positive, you know, maybe not from a, uh, um, maybe it won't drive as much traffic or get as enough clicks as you want, but even perception wise, you know, the fact that someone's suddenly going to your site and saying, you know what, they came up, they come up with original research 90% of the time. Um, I'm going to go to this site no matter what, because I'm curious. Um, it feels like it's, it's always worth it either way. Absolutely. I, I think also it, uh, any good content marketing strategy is going to include a, a strong mix of, um, you know, content types where research and original data and all that is just one piece of a puzzle. It's not a hundred percent of your, um, content strategy, unless you're somebody like uh, Nate Silver's 538, which always has original mm. data in like yeah. every single piece. Uh, but for most, right. of us, most of us, you can get a lot of, you can get a lot of, um, mileage out of five or 10% or less, um, original mm. data, if that's your thing. It, it depends on how easy it is to gather the data and, uh, you know, collect it and publish it regularly. But um, for most of us, it's going to be part of the overall strategy. Interesting trend that we found uh, also in, in this article, um, as long as we're on data, how often are bloggers using data to inform the content that they're creating? It's going up. Like before it used to be, I think 25% would say usually or always uh, using data to inform their, their content strategies. It's gone up to about 59%, which which actually, to me, is still pretty shocking that only six out of ten bloggers are using <laughs> any sort of data or metrics to inform or, or even give them an idea of how past content has performed. Um, seems kind of shocking to me. It, it, it almost feels like if you're doing any sort of digital marketing, content marketing, um, you're completely wasting resources unless you're constantly iterating based on this data. The fact that if you're writing a blog post on this and there isn't data involved, I mean already you're kind of losing um, uh, authority. You know, you're saying all this stuff, but there's no, no, even a pie chart to kind of like, you know, get drawn into <laughs> something you can point to and be like, look, look at the pie chart and it's going this way. Um, I think that has to be part of it. And it, I think it looks worse when, in, when the data is absent. Here's a last interesting fact on this. Um, people that are uh, driving more traffic uh, with their content, they're reporting that, or, or rather when they're creating content and they're distributing it, they're reporting that the most uh, beneficial way to distribute their content is through influencer outreach. That beat out SEO, that beat out um, social sharing, uh, beat out everything. I think influencer outreach was like 45%. We were just talking about that a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's kind of surprising to me uh, that it's happening at that higher rate. I mean, I'm not really using it. You know how we feel about this. We've, we've talked about influencer outreach and how it's kind of a mixed bag. You really don't know what you're getting when you're paying an influencer to represent your brand. But it seems that other people do. Well, you know, our friend, my friend, Rand Fishkin, um, you know, he, he started Spark, uh, Spark Toro uh, recently. And a lot of people don't 
uh, a lot of people don't realize his business model. They're, they're trying to build new tools and solutions in the influencer uh, marketing space. Uh, and he, he published a blog post, I think it was this week, um, which was 10 problems plaguing influencer marketing. Uh, and to Jeff's point, uh, th what, what you said, Jeff, these are exactly the problems people are facing, you know, with influencer marketing. It's so ill, well-defined. You don't know what you're getting. There's no metrics around it. Um, and it's been overtaken with, you know, uh, fake Instagram, um, right. <laughs> In, it, a few years ago, it was sponsored tweets by uh, mm -hmm. celebrities, and you'd pay a certain amount of money to get a sponsored tweet, but you had no no defined ROI. Um, right. <laughs> influencer marketing is huge, and just like chatbots, I'm sure it's going to be it's a growing industry that's only getting bigger. But uh, right now, it's you're you're kind of pouring money down the drain, and you don't really know what you're doing. Especially with the Instagram too, and I read that blog post as well. It's, it's, it was awesome. Um, really shed a lot of light on some of the darker sides of influencer marketing. And one of which is Instagram. Like you mentioned, there's hardly any metrics. Um, fortunately, Rand and his team put together that uh, his tool on Spark Toro that allow you to look at in a, any Twitter account and see what percentage of the followers uh, or their audience is legitimate and uh, rather than bots or paid for or whatever. Um, however, uh, in the Instagram area. It's, it's so closed off that it's really, really hard, almost impossible without manually checking to see like how much of their, this influencers crowd are real people uh, and not bots. Uh, so you could theoretically be paying somebody who you think is an influencer, but in reality, it's just paid for a whole bunch of bots. Um, or they do have people that are following them, but to Rand's point, it's just them, you know, taking a picture with a product. Uh, right. And so it's not like they're not really an influencer. They've just somehow gained a lot of followers that they may not have any real influence over whatsoever. So it's, yeah, seeing a lot of people reporting high ROI, but I've uh, got my skeptical hat on there. The the only thing and I will always kind of go into like the other side of the coin. The, um, the only thing I will say about this specifically with Instagram and influencer marketing is that going back to the idea of, of the fact that no one really visits websites anymore. And in some cases, people aren't really searching for like, what is the next cool handbag that I want or whatever. In the B2C kind of market space, the next generation, or maybe even this, like the second next generation, is only on Instagram. That's the only way they interact with anything they might want to buy or any type of service they might want. Um, we had, um, Cyrus, I always talk about this, but we had interns last year and I was taking them through a client's website. And this is a big, big, you know, B2C client. They, they, they sell a specific, you know, fashion accessory. They've been around for decades. And I told them who it was and they were like, oh, we've never heard of that. I've never heard of that brand whatsoever. And it was shocking, you know? I mean, it's a brand I grew up with, a brand, you know, my parents grew up with. And yet this 20, 21 year old college girl, as, 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 the brand may not have existed. And she basically told me, I don't buy anything unless I see it on Instagram first, um, which means that there is in some markets, I, I will say it's there's a reason why it exists, because it's the only way they can reach that specific audience that will help drive up, you know, certain sales or certain products. Mm -hmm. uh, wh who is it? Kylie Jenner, uh, the makeup mm. Uh, you know, she's built her entire business, uh, a billion dollar business on influencer marketing, um, which is great. I, well, actually, if <laughs> I'm, I'm an old person, right? So I remember when Bruce Jenner uh, was doing influencer marketing back in the 70s. Uh, and now, yeah, now, now Caitlyn Jenner. But, you know, I remember he gave an interview where uh, it in the nineties or early two thousands where he was basically talking about his entire business model. He's like, he's like, I, I had one accomplishment in my life. I won an Olympic medal. That's all I did. And I don't think in the, my, my success has come from leveraging that one event. And I don't think anyone in the history of sports has leveraged a single event better than I have over the, over the last 20 years. And that statement today is even more true because he, 
he transferred that down to his children and his children became celebrities and they have leveraged influencer marketing and it was all based on that 1976 uh you know decathlon <laughs> event and bruce jenner's and <laughs> so he's that that is going to go down in history books as the the best influencer marketing campaign spanning six decades that ever existed <laughs> The idea that we've always had influencer marketing, um, I think what's what's different today is we're attaching new buzzwords to it, and but I think what's going to have to happen in the future is attaching new metrics to it, and I'm excited that uh, hopefully, you know, Rand and other entrepreneurs can kind of guide this market and open up new opportunities and, and better metrics. So people, people such as, you know, like at Brafton or other, other agencies, when, if they choose to spend money on this, they know exactly what they're getting. Yeah, I agree. And the point that I made when we talked about this uh, last week was, yeah, influencer marketing has been around forever. It's been around since John Wayne was uh, smoking camel cigarettes, <laughs> uh, you know, back of magazines and stuff. And, and generally influencers are people that are top in their field and they, you want them to represent your brand because they are the top in the field, whether it's an actor or, uh, you know, a Bruce Jenner athlete, whatever. Um, or like I mentioned, it could be like a, you know, a a tax attorney. He could be the very best tax attorney in his, (laughs) in his niche. Now, you know, maybe only 0.1% of the world actually cares about that. However, that is the influencer because they have accomplished something. They, they have done something of note and people want to, they value their opinion because they're the best at it. And where I take issue is, is when you've got these quote unquote influencers who really haven't contributed something noteworthy to their niche, their space, um, which makes them essentially, you know, some of these people just uh, an email list, uh, you know, uh, an, an audience, access to an audience, basically. They're kind of like uh, a gatekeeper to their audience as opposed to um, actually having, having done something that influences that particular niche. That's where I take issue with it. And I really, really like the idea of, of what Rand's team is doing and, and kind of like shedding light on this and showing, okay, first they've done it with Twitter. Who are the real influencers? Here's, here's a real, here's a look under the engine of what's really going on, um, which I think is awesome. And uh, I'm not excited to see where they go from there. I don't know what he's got in store moving forward, but I, I'm certain it's moving in that kind of direction. I mean, thinking hypothetically, what are some of the, I mean, Cyrus, you mentioned metrics. What, what are some of the metrics we want? Um, last time we talked on this, Jeff, you mentioned like just knowing or even having a rating system of the, uh, of the, uh, the followers of that influencer would be helpful. You know, we made the joke about having a, a BBB rating, but what other, um, <laughs> you know, what other, what other metrics do we, would we want to see? you know, housed around influencer marketing? What's missing that we want to know more insight on? Well, I think the first one that you want to select is uh, something something to rate uh, the the influence, actually rate the influence of the influencer. How light, how okay. powerful right. is this person able to spread a message? What are, what are some of their success rates in terms of virality scores or uh, net promoter mm-hmm. scores? Um, and there's very few metrics like that. It's, it's just, right now it's just, uh, follower count. Uh, this person has, you know, 20 million, 20 million uh, followers. That's why Instagram celebrities are so easy to gain the system because it's just based on these really simple uh, follower count metrics or, or things that you can uh, gain pretty easily with bots. And so I think you need better metrics around that. Um, and the flip side of that is that you, you, we need to be- measure, uh, and I'm stealing all of this from Rand, by the way, so don't think I'm coming up with this. Uh, uh, the, the, the other thing you need to you need to measure ROI more efficiently, um, especially especially around big brands. You need to, and again, the metrics around it sucks because we're measuring retweets, we're measuring likes, and that's not ROI. Uh, that's those yeah. are vanity metrics, and we need better attribution models, better tracking. Um, better, better lift scores. And, uh, until those metrics improve, it's going to be a black box. I, I like the idea of being able to measure the influence. And I mean, obviously questions that abound in my mind are like, is it, is it, is it based on just purchasing or is it based on the fact that they are actually now talking online about whatever the influence or influencer um, uh, mentioned? Um, even, even breaking it down in those levels would be interesting. Maybe they didn't buy, but they're spreading the word and look how far their reach is. I mean, you could really see this on a, on a, you know, a digital map in the sense of like how, 
how one purchase of an influencer's audience could help a brand permeate various markets and even various demographics thanks to this one person. That person would be in, in, incredibly valuable. Um, and I, hopefully that is the future we're, we're going toward. I think that brings us down to another rabbit hole of the issue of attribution, which is so, so mm. incredibly difficult to do. Any, anybody doing web analytics that tries to wrap their head around attributions, they, we do our best job to, to figure out the mindset of somebody that makes a purchase or converts online and you can follow their pathway. However, you can't measure offline behavior um, in a very, in an easy way, uh, in an efficient way. And you can't measure somebody's uh, sentiment in an easy way either. There's, there's so many emotional aspects that go into this stuff that it's tough. And, and yeah, I agree that we, we need to get better at measuring these metrics with, with influencers, definitely. But I think there's always going to be that, that emotional wild card that's going to be kind of like an, an intangible that's just hard to track. Yeah. And, and to that point, Jeff, there, I mean, right now, influencer marketing is where TV, print, and radio uh, advertising was in the 60s and 70s, uh, where yeah. the quote was, uh, half of the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The problem is I don't know which half. Uh, <laughs> and, and that's where we are with influencer marketing today. But there was, a, there, there was still value in that advertising because uh, it increased brand awareness. We've become so spoiled in the last few years with AdWords, with uh, last click attribution, that we yeah. know where every dollar is spent and we're, we've really optimized the bottom of the funnel. And we've forgotten that the top of funnel marketing where it's just brand awareness, where it doesn't lead to a direct purchase today, but maybe eight months from now, uh, where, we're, where people are talking about our brand, we've actually yeah. almost shunned that type of marketing because we can't, uh, we can't find that last dollar. And I think a lot of brands um, have mistakenly abandoned that uh, yeah. because they, they, wanna, they want every dollar attributed for. And so there, may, there might be some value in that top of funnel um, influencer marketing where you don't see every dollar spent. Um, and you, you, do it on, you do it because you know it's the right thing to do and it's going gonna, it's gonna to spread magic down the line. But there's, there's, there's an argument there somewhere. I'm not, I'm not sure where. Yeah, especially in those larger organizations when you've got uh, different departments that all need to show their value. So you're going to have attribution issues with, uh, you know, social media team wants to take credit for something. Uh, the AdWords team wants to take credit for something. The, um, and then you've got even more difficult, like you mentioned, the top of the funnel, which is so much harder to measure as a straight line down to revenue. Um, they're going to take first interaction, right? So you've got so many competing departments that it's, it's kind of hard to get a clear, a real clear picture of what's going on. Going back and maybe this is a good place to end, but, um, <clears throat> Jeff, you mentioned, you know, being able to even track offline and have that emotional element of it. You may have just saw the beginnings of it with that Amazon go store. You mentioned like the cameras or whatever, were all above your head, watching what you purchased, how you purchased and so on. Um, I can only imagine what type of data they got from, you know, your three or four purchases last weekend from Amazon Go. And what is that going to give us? Like what, if they have stores like that in every single major city or even some smaller cities around the, around the country or world, um, what type of shopping or buyer persona information are we going to gain from that? Oh, uh, now that you put it that way, I hope they didn't see me uh, pulling out my wedgie. That would be very, <laughs> very bad data to be to logging in their in their system. It always happens in the fruit aisle. Why is it always yeah, happens in the fruit? Macro <laughs> <laughs> um, bowls. Um, yeah. Well, as always, we always end with some highbrow conversation. So I'm I'm glad for that. Um, Cyrus, I want to thank you. This was fun, man. Thanks for taking the time. Um, it's definitely one of our longer podcasts, but I honestly feel it's one of our more interesting ones. And um, uh, thank you for, for for being a part of it. Thank you for having me, guys. I was uh, I was like I said, I was excited to hear who the special guest was. Uh, <laughs> shocked that it was me, uh, but happy to be here. Yeah, he never showed up. <laughs> <laughs> never yeah. showed up. We we got this other guy still waiting. Yeah. Thank, thanks again, Cyrus. Um, Everybody, you can find Cyrus at uh, Zippy, which is uh, a company that he started, a uh, consultancy uh, after leaving uh, Moz. Cyrus, I don't believe that you are taking on any new clients at the moment, right? But you do have uh, an excellent resource center for, for SEOs, uh, content marketing managers, 
um, pretty much anybody working in the space. Any, anything you wanted to add to that? Any plugs? Uh, no, expect, ex- I uh, expect some new content to come out soon. Awesome. Uh, do you want to give us a, uh, a sneak peek into what that might be? Uh, right now, uh, I'm working on some JavaScript resources because uh, auditing JavaScript is a particular weakness of mine. Um, I'm, not, I'm not an extremely technical SEO uh, person. Um, so I, I wanted to undertake something to help people like myself, people with no technical background, uh, audit JavaScript. There's so many great resources out there, but I still feel yeah. like they're a little intimidating uh, to the non-techie. So uh, that's something I'm tackling right now. Well, that definitely makes three of us. Uh, when would you say that that's, uh, when, could, when can we look for that to come out? Uh, 2024. 2024. Okay, cool. I'm mar- mark, mark that on my calendar. Yeah. Not question my work ethic. I'm, I'm really, really uh, hard at work at this. Uh, well, at least it's a deadline. At least you got a deadline for it. Uh, all right. Well, thanks again, Cyrus. And uh, Jeff, I think that'll do it for uh, this week's Above the Fold. Yep. Thanks, everybody, for joining. Don't forget to subscribe and rate. Um, yeah, we'll definitely read the bad ratings too. We'll probably read those first. <laughs> Bring them on. Nope. <laughs> nope. Nope. <laughs> All right. Thanks again, Cyrus. Thanks, Cyrus. Thanks, Cyrus.